verse 44. If you're using the Pew Bibles, that's on page 915. Uh, This is the uh, New Testament commentary on Psalm 132. That is our sermon text for today. Uh, Acts 7 is part of Stephen's speech. Really, it's a sermon. It's a great Biblical sermon, encourage you to read all the way through it. He, he follows God's covenant of grace um, uh, through all of uh, Israel's history, even to Christ. And we're just reading a portion. Acts 7, uh, verse 44. Hear the word of God. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet... The Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did not your fathers persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Amen to this reading of God's holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible word. Uh, The grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand through it. Amen. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we, we thank you for all of scripture. Thank you for the Psalms, the Psalms of Ascent, We thank you, though, for all of the Old Testament, Lord. Helps us better understand the character of God, the nature of sin. Thank you for the New Testament, Lord, that more clearly depicts um, the glory of Christ, the grace that you have shown us at the cross, uh, the hope of glory. Lord, pray that your Holy Spirit uh, would give us ears to hear, hearts to receive, and uh, a willingness, a readiness to obey, Father. All to your glory and praise. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, would invite you to keep your Bibles open. Turn back to Psalm 132. Uh, it's on page 519. Uh, begin with a question. What's the uh, first thought that pops into your mind when you hear the word worship? You don't have to say it out loud. You 
know, some might say, well, boring. Others might say irrelevant. Others antiquated. Uh, but, give you, but to give you a, a quick sample of uh, Psalm 132, look at verse 9. You know, let your priests be clothed with righteousness. Let your saints shout for joy, that, that righteousness of God through faith in Christ, that joy of salvation in Jesus. You know, Psalm 132 is the 13th of the 15 psalms of ascent sung by God's people as they were walking up to Jerusalem on one of the three annual feasts to worship the Lord. You know, in this final group of three psalms of ascent, uh, Alec Motier notes they're, they're all centered on Zion. They're, they're all centered on worship. It, it, we can rightly believe that the, the pilgrims are, are right at the gates of Jerusalem, if not within the walls of Jerusalem. They're headed up to the Temple Mount uh, to, to worship the Lord. Uh, to best understand uh, Psalm 132, it was most likely a psalm written by King Solomon, you know, who actually built the temple, but it was written about King David, who desired, it was his heart's desire, his holy passion, to build uh, that house for the Lord, for the covenant-keeping God. You know, here in this psalm, of ascent, we'll, we'll hear mention of the Ark of the Covenant, uh, the Ark of Your Might there in verse 8. You know, it's a psalm that reminds us of, of God, that reminds us of God's covenant promises. And if you look closely at the bulletin, uh, this Lord's Day, we're, we're looking at the first 10 verses, you know, thinking of, of David speaking to the Lord, reminding the Lord of, of his covenant promises. And then next week in verses 11 through 18, it's the Lord speaking to David, reminding David of, of his covenant promises. Uh, but as we uh, study these first 10 verses together, we'll see that theme of worship. And in corporate worship, God's saints, and that's us, God's saints, gladly remember his covenant promises. That that was true in David's day, Solomon's day. It's still true in our days. You know, we we gladly remember God's covenant promises to us in Christ. That leads us uh, to worship. Well, why should God's covenant promises lead us to glad worship? Well, see, there's a covenant commitment First five verses, a big chunk here at the beginning. But then there's a covenant community, verses 6 and 7, and then a covenant celebration in verses 8 through 10. But let us begin with that covenant commitment to a mighty God. David begins the psalm, or Solomon writing the psalm about David, but you can almost hear David saying, Remember! Oh, Lord, you know, that, that's a plea. It's a strong plea. It, it's a command, actually. You know, Lord, remember. Not that the Lord ever forgets. 
know, he never gets amnesia, never senile, he never has a senior moment. You know, remember. In David's favor, on David's behalf, and again, that title for Lord, all capital letters, Yahweh, Jehovah, you know, our faithful covenant-keeping God who graciously reveals himself you know, to his covenant people. I, I know we've read this before, but uh, looking at it again, Exodus three fourteen through 15, uh, this is when God has appeared to Moses in the burning bush, and he's you know, hesitating about God's command, calling him to... to be God's leader, and we read this, Exodus 3.14. God said to Moses, I am who I am, Yahweh, Jehovah. I will be who I will be. And he said, this is God, and God said, say this to the people of Israel, I am, you know, Yahweh has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. And then this last phrase, pay attention, this is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. So the Lord has given that command to, to, Mos, or to, to Moses and to us, thus I am to be remembered. You know, on, on that basis, we, we hear, you know, this plea to the Lord. You know, remember, O Lord. You know, remember all the, the last part of verse 1, all the hardships he endured. All, all the pain. Interesting use of that phrase. I read the verse for our offering, but let me read it for us again. There's going to be more scripture references today, just to give you the heads up. First uh, Chronicles 22:14. With great pains, I have provided for the house of the Lord a hundred thousand talents of gold, a million talents of silver and bronze and iron beyond weighing, for there is so much of it, timber and stone too, I have provided. Uh, to these you must add, and he goes on. So when going back to Psalm 132, verse 1, all the hardships, you know, not, not speaking of David's hardships of, of fighting Goliath and his sons who rebelled against him, or King Saul who tried to, to kill him, it's that, that hardship, that sacrifice, you know, uh, of David's offering. You know, but, but even as David tells of that, there in First Chronicles, recorded for us in Scripture, you know, David gave gladly, generously, Maybe someone can do the, the math, do the economics math for us. You know, the dollar amount that David gave, he, he gave sacrificially to the Lord. A hardship, but he, he knows God's sacrificial love for him. And it calls him to great worship. David gave so that they could build this temple, this temple for the worship of the one true and living God. 
Hope Palmer Robertson writes, this psalm concentrated on the two elements that that were at the heart of God's covenant with David. The building of a house, that is a temple for the Lord, and confirming of a house, a dynasty for David. And, And that's how the psalm breaks down. You know, first ten verses speak of, of David's desire, his heart's desire to build that house for the Lord, and then the Lord reminds David of a greater promise, a greater covenant, that, that the seed of David, descendant of David, w- would always be on the throne. It points us to Christ. You know, a, a covenant We're not going to see that word covenant or hear it until verse 12, if your sons keep my covenant. And if that's a new term for you, it's a scriptural term, but it speaks of God's sovereign administration of grace and promise. You know, God made a covenant with Adam there in the Garden of Eden. Adam broke it. God made a covenant with Noah rainbow. God made a covenant with Abraham. God made a covenant with David. No, he is a covenant-keeping God, always faithful to his promises. So David makes this plea, but there's there's a vow. The psalm tells us of, of David's vow, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob. There's another title for God, mighty one of Jacob. I know I've read that before, but it it struck me, and you'll see how often that title is used for God. He's a covenant-keeping God, but but he is a mighty God, mighty God of Jacob. You hear it first used back in Genesis 49. We won't read it, but, but we hear it in Isaiah 49, verse 26. Isaiah 49, verse 26. I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh, and they shall be drunk with their own blood as with wine. Then all flesh shall know, and then listen, that I am the Lord your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. You know, I am the Lord, your rede- Lord, your Savior, Savior, and your Mighty One, and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. You know, you see, He is a mighty God who protected, guided, and blessed Jacob, as one scholar put it. He's our mighty Savior, our mighty Redeemer. You know, how can we not be committed to such a mighty God? And so David begins to take the vows here in uh, Psalm 132, beginning in verse 3. You know, three parts of David's commitment to a mighty God. You can read more in 2 Samuel 7. You know, but, but three. First, I will not enter my house or lie on my bed. If you go back to 2 Samuel, you can see that David makes this vow in the midst of battle near the beginning of his reign. And we'll, we'll take his word for it on, on this one. But then he takes it a step further. Second vow, I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids. 
A little bit of poetic license here. Hyperbole. Jesus used hyperbole. You know, at, at the very least, it's teaching us that we as believers should not be sluggards or sleep addicts. But it's a vow who, of one who lovingly labors for the Lord. Lord, I'll, I'll labor for you sunrise to sunset. Maybe a few evenings, too, by candlelight. But the end goal of the commitment there in verse 5 until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. There's that title again. You know, in, in all humility, it's David's heart's desire to seek until he finds a holy habitation, a suitable place for the dwelling place of, of the Lord. The dwelling place of the Lord speaks of the, of the temple. Yes, the Lord had been with his people in the tabernacle as they as a marched through the wilderness for 40 years. But he desires to find that place for the Lord. It was in the heart of David to build a house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. David humbly asked to find a dwelling place for the God alone who is worthy of all worship and praise. That's what we read in Acts 7.46. So it was until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. Worship was the passion of his life, the priority of his life. It wasn't just building a house, though that was important, building this house of worship. You know, his heart was for the Lord to worship and praise him. Jim Boyce put it this way, David was motivated by a desire for God's honor and glory. He sought a site to worship this mighty one of Jacob. He proclaims his holy passion for the holy worship of his majestic, merciful, and mighty God, the God of his salvation. A lot there in the first five verses. But... uh, Illustration. Um, last weekend, uh, five of our dedicated church attenders, I say dedicated, met for a introduction to hope, a welcome to hope class. We met Friday night, 6 to 9, and then Saturday morning, 9 till noon. Uh, the outline for the class, be glad to share it with you, it was based on the seven questions that are asked for church membership here in our denomination, the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church. The fourth question is this. Let me read it for us. Uh, Do you now promise in humble reliance upon the guidance of the Holy Spirit that you will endeavor to live as becomes a follower of Christ? You know, we're, we're not saved by our works, but if we are saved by God's grace, through faith in Christ, and then we are going to live that life that's honoring, pleasing, glorifying the Lord, that fruitful life of faith. And, and so that fourth verse really deals with sanctification. 
becoming more Christ-like. And, and one of the ways that God patiently and perseveringly conforms us to the image of Christ is in worship. You know, every Lord's Day, you know, we, we hear God's word read, we sing his praises, we partake of the Lord's Supper together. You know, sanctification You know, a chief mark of a follower of Christ is faithful worship with God's family. I believe it's contradictory for someone who says, well, I'm a follower of Christ, but I don't belong to a church. I don't go to worship on the Lord's Day. I have my own thing. No. You know, two ways even that Christians can approach worship. You know, we can be casual. Oh. Forgot it's Sunday, I better quick get ready. Make it there before it's too late. Or we have a clear, compassionate commitment to our mighty God, our mighty God who hears our prayers, our pleas, you know, because of his love for us in Christ. A covenant commitment to a mighty God. But look next at verses 6 and 7, this will be shorter. Don't fret, a covenant community in our mighty God. Verse 6 starts with that word, behold. That's an attention-grabbing word. Wake up, smell the coffee, pay attention to what is going to take place. And God's word proclaims, we heard of it in Ephrata. I know how to pronounce it. I had a, a soccer teammate in college who was from Ephrata, Pennsylvania. So we had to learn how to spell it, say it. But we, we heard of it. We heard of it about the ark. That's what the it is referring to in, in Ephrata, in, in the region of Bethlehem. We found it, we found the ark in the, in the fields or the woods of J.R. You know, it's a difficult verse. This is what all the commentaries say. You know, but, but focus on the ark at, at first. And again, just to bring us, I know our ladies have been going through Exodus. And, but uh, for the rest of us to, to bring us up to speed, why, why is the Ark, the Ark of the Covenant, so important to God? Why is it so important to Old Testament worship? And I believe by implication uh, to our worship today. You know, a, a quick summary. Uh, God's people constructed the Ark according to God's commands. Uh, you can read about it, Exodus 37, the Ark was was carried by the priests in the wilderness. And the way they carried it, it was such a holy box that they they carried it by poles. They they didn't touch it with their hands. The ark was covered with different material. It it, It was small, you think about it. It was approximately 45 inches long. I tried to figure that out this morning, so somewhere around that long. You know, 27 inches high, 27 inches deep, you know, in in our terms. It was constructed of acacia wood covered with gold. Its lid 
Again, of gold was called the, the mercy seat or the atonement cover. You know, there on the mercy seat, the high priest once a year on the day of atonement uh, would enter into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle sacrificial blood, actually of a bull, on the mercy seat for the sins of the nation. You know, on that day called the Day of Atonement, it's there in Leviticus 16. And there above the mercy seat were two cherubim, you know, angel-like figures at either end, you know, with their, their wings overspreading the, the mercy seat, their faces turned downward, even the cherubim are worshiping uh, the Lord. You know, what, why was the ark important? The ark symbolized God's presence with his people. God's people reverently placed it in, in the Holy of Holies, not, not for the, the everyday worshiper, not even for the everyday priest. You know, in the promised land, then, it was placed first in Shiloh, later on in Solomon's temple, but, you know, it's a, a, a great reading as you go through the Old Testament. First, you know, the, the Philistines captured the ark in, in uh, the battle with, with Israel. Israel thought, well, if we bring the ark of the covenant with us, you know, that's like our good luck charm. We'll defeat the, the Philistines. Uh, but God had another plan, a humbling plan for, for Israel. That ark was captured by the Philistines. So at first the Philistines were glad to have it, but then, you know, wherever they brought the ark, there was plagues, death, tumors. You know, that's a holy God in the presence of a non-holy people. And the Philistines, my, my language, thought we better get rid of this ark. And so they put it on an ox cart, and they said, well, if it goes back uh, to the promised land, then we'll be safe. And by God's grace, uh, the ark came back. Uh, to Israel, to the village of Kiriath-Jerim, 1 Samuel 7-2. You know, but somewhere along the way, the ark, imagine this, the ark was lost. No one knew where the ark was. You know, it was in, in the household of Obed-Edom for a, for a time. You know, and so that's why David says here, you know, we heard of it, we heard of its location there in Ephrata, but we found it in the fields, in the woods of J.R. You know, take the, the story one step further, Bible story, when David first sought to bring the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem, that, you know, they found it, they're going to bring it back. So David puts it on a cart, and uh, they begin to carry the ark back, and uh, the the cart or the oxen stumble. So there's a man, godly man, but a sinner, Uzzah, who puts out his hand to study the ark. You know, because God is a holy God, and and we cannot come into the presence of a holy God without a mediator. When Uzzah reached out to to steady the ark to keep it from hitting the ground, God struck struck us a dead. 
And so they stopped. Later on, the, the ark was brought back to Jerusalem. You know, they carried it in on poles. They made sacrifices along the way, blood sacrifices, and they rejoiced as the ark was brought back. You know, but here David found the forgotten Ark of the Covenant. It's, if you read through the Old Testament, there's a, a picture in 2 Kings 22. King Josiah is the king, and uh, they're going through uh, the temple. And, and what do they do? They, they, they rediscover the book of the law, you know, the Bible. You know, imagine that, losing the Bible. No, the Bible, the Word of God. No, that's what can happen in worship. You know, worship can be forgotten. You know, forgotten by us personally, can be forgotten by the church, by Christians. Say, well, it's not that important. I, I, I forgot about it. You know, but, but here we see uh, this, this covenant community you know, and look again at verse 6 and following. You know, the, the pronouns change from verses 1 through 5. Behold, we heard of it in Ephrata. We found it in the fields of J.R. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Here, here we see that worship is, is done by God's grace for his glory as a covenant community. You know, worship is not a private affair. You know, when, when a Christian says, well, I, I just stay at home and worship, told that to someone just the other day. You know, that's not, that's not corporate worship. You know, you're, you're praising God. Yes, you're praying to God. You're reading his word. You know, but the Lord calls us together as a redeemed people to worship him. You know, David zealously calls all of God's people to gather in God's holy present and worship at his footstool. You know, that, that's the term given, you know, to the mercy seat, the atonement coven, cover. Heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. You know, where, where did God make his, his presence known? There at the Ark of the Covenant, and in all, all glory and uh, holy humility, that was God's footstool. Let us worship at his footstool. You know, that was there in the coal to worship. Heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. You know, we humbly come into God's holy presence you know, because he makes himself known to us. You know, when COVID-19 first hit us hard, I think it was two years ago, next March, March 2020, I lose track. Sort of a blur. Maybe I'm just trying to forget the, those difficult days. You know, but, you know, in, in one week's notice, you know, we, we, we were forced... Or we submitted discussion for another time. Did not have public worship. And uh, we instantly began live streaming. You know, thanks to Jason and Dirk and their technology. 
You know, but you know, I don't know whether you remember that. You know, I was here. Lynn was here. We only had two from the worship team who were here. You know, just, just a handful, literally a handful of people. I think I've told you, um, uh, you know, I put your names on your pews. I know where you sit. I look each Sunday. And why did I do that? Because I, I, I didn't want to be preaching to an empty church. You know, I was preaching to, to you all. And, and I was so glad, forget when it was, I think it was in the fall, we were, we were able to slowly begin gathering together. For, for corporate worship. As a covenant community, what do we learn here about worship? You know, it's a community of believers. That's a good thing. You know, when, when we gather together by God's grace, we who are trusting in Christ, sinners saved by grace through faith in Christ, we gather together as a community. A second, we confidently come into the Lord's holy presence in Christ. You know, we, we worship at, at his footstool, the God who is with us in Christ. And third, we, we celebrate God's grace to us in Christ. Worship is a time of, of joy, of, of gladness. You know, for our sins have been forgiven in Christ. We worship at his mercy seat that Christ the high priest has made the sacrifice for our sins. So a covenant commitment to a mighty God, a covenant community in our mighty God, finally and quickly, verses 8 through 10, a covenant celebration with our mighty God. Beginning there with verse 8, now we hear uh, the echoes uh, of the voice of Moses the prophet again. Uh, Moses the prophet who led God's people in the wilderness as they prepared to set out on their pilgrimage to the promised land uh, with the Ark of the Covenant. And you can keep your Bibles open there to Psalm 132, verse 8, but here Numbers chapter 10, verse 35. Numbers 10.35, and whenever the ark set out, Moses said, Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. And when it rested, he said, Return, O Lord, to the ten thousand thousands of Israel. You know, arise, O Lord. Lord, we we don't want to go out. We don't want to... Start our march until you go before us, until the the pillar of cloud and fire leads us in the way. You know, we will stay put. And the Lord faithfully led his people, provided for them each step of the way. And so again, we, we worship that God. Arise, O Lord, go to your resting place. That's why we speak of the Sabbath as a day of rest. God rested on the seventh day. Not that he was tired. You know, not that he had to go sit in the lazy boy, put his feet up. You know, he, he rested. You know, the, the work was done uh, of creation. You know, we have a holy resting as well. Go to your resting place. You know, rest for our souls. Our weary souls when we come to worship. 
you and the ark of your might. You know, that tangible symbol of the merciful presence of our mighty God. You know, to take it a step further, one Bible teacher put it this way, and I think rightly so, the Ark of the Covenant was a figure of God incarnate. It was a type of Christ. You know, we can rightly think of Christ when we think of the Ark of the Covenant. You know, the the risen Christ who is with us. You know, the risen Christ who leads us in triumphant procession. You and the ark of your might. We think of the mighty work of Christ. The righteous one who died for us, the unrighteous ones to bring us to God. And we see that celebration again, verse 9, let your priests be clothed with righteousness. Remember that priests served as God's covenant mediators in the Old Testament. Uh, again, as well, the, the priests here point us to Christ, our glorious and a great high priest. You know, Hebrews 9, 11 and 12, Hebrews 9, 11 and 12, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he, that is Christ, entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Thus securing an eternal redemption. You know, priests clothed with righteousness speaks of the righteousness of Christ. And let your saints, you know, and that's us, those who have been set apart by holy God, set apart to serve him, to worship him, let your saints shout for joy. Okay, maybe we'll shout when we're all done, but, you know, our joy should be audible, you know, to one another and to the Lord. And finally, for the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. Again, that anointed one points to Christ. Prophets, priests, and kings were anointed. Jesus is our prophet, priest, and king. And so in worship, we always come in the name of Christ. David Dixon put it this way, For in him, Christ, the prayer is surely heard. Christ, the anointed one, cannot be refused, nor any who truly pray in his name. We always come to worship in the name of Christ. You know, when I finish writing my sermon and before I preach it, you know, when I was in seminary, had a great homiletics professor, those who teach you about preaching and then throw you into the water to preach by yourself in the deep end. But he had a 42-question a checklist, and, and I still use it today. Uh, you know, but towards the end, um, we, we as preachers are to ask ourselves these three questions, and I think they're helpful for us as a, a community of faith in Christ. You know, was the sermon God-centered? 
Secondly, did it exalt Christ? And then third and finally, I believe this is the most important question, you know, did the expositor, did the preacher clearly proclaim the gospel? You know, is, is the gospel loud and clear? You know, that, that we are sinners, saved by grace through faith in Christ. And, and we come to our holy God, mighty God, you know, in, in the merciful name of Jesus. Let your priest be clothed with righteousness and let your saints shout for joy. We'll try it with amen. We'll say it loudly and joyfully. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you that you invite us to come into your presence. And you not only invite us, you clothe us with the righteousness of Christ will never be turned away when we're trusting in Christ. And, and Lord, may we always be growing in our understanding of worship. For that's what we're going to be doing for all, for all eternity with you in glory. And we'll, it, it will never grow boring. We'll never grow tired of it, Lord. Instead, our, our hearts, our passion for worship will be growing ever deeper greater day by day and so lord give us a a taste of that even even now as we gather together in in the name of christ to give you all glory and honor and praise that you have clothed us with your righteousness you you call us as your saints Uh, to always shout for joy that joy of salvation in christ in whose name we pray Amen.